when we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you, must also, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Evening, everybody. Um, so I, I don't know about you guys, but I'm, I'm feeling tired. I'm feeling sore. I think if I wasn't up here talking right now, I'd be really fighting the sleep monster uh, sitting in a chair. So hang with me. If you need to nap, I get it too. Uh, but I want to start, uh, kind of, oh, this is a true story. Um, it's kind of a dark story too. Uh, but I want to start with it because I think it gets us back to where we were, right? Right where we were talking about the last kind of chapter in the created, or the redemptive story that we're talking about, right? That which is the fall. And we're about to hop into redemption. Uh, so I want you to imagine with me, it's a dark night in the neighborhood, uh, and there's a woman who has uh, been drinking alcohol all day. And I'm not really sure why. I don't know that part of the story, uh, but I do know that she was doing this because she was just trying not to feel kind of the hurt and pain uh, that she had been feeling for a long time. And unfortunately, this woman not only decided to get drunk, but then she decided uh, to hop in a car and to drive intoxicated as well. Uh, so that means she was kind of driving above the speed limit, swerving out of the lane, doing some things that were, were really dangerous, right? Uh, and because of her desire to kind of not really feel those very real feelings of uh, pain in her life, um, she, she tried to kind of numb herself out, right? And she did this to the point where she couldn't really feel anything, where she was kind of practically dead to her world, right? She couldn't really see that well. She wasn't responding well. Um, she couldn't really feel anything. And so eventually she passes out in the car behind the wheel. Now, as she's kind of coming around the corner, there's this house. And this house, uh, if you can imagine, is kind of down below the road, right? So the curb's coming this way. The house is over there. I can't follow the mic with my mouth. Um, and uh, because she's passed out, she's not able to turn, right? Um, and so there's this man's house right down there. His name's John Stone. This is a real man who told this story before, actually. Uh, who happened, this happened to his house uh, where he and his wife lived. And he has these like prize rose bushes that he has just spent way too much time on. And they're like pristine, right? And so because she can't make that turn, the car launches off, right? And it comes down, crushes those rose bushes that he spent a lot of time in, and cr like crashes into the house. So for all intents and purposes, right, the impact of the car and the speed that this woman was going should have spelled instant death for her, right? But something happened. As she was flying through the air, because she was so out of it, she actually kind of fell down to the floor, right, right where the gas and the brake pedal are. And she crumpled down there, right? And also, because she was passed out, she didn't really hold any tension in her body. And so when the impact came, the car actually kind of folded around her and protected her from any serious harm. And you might be thinking, this is a really weird way to start a talk. Uh, it's, it's a tough subject, and I give you that. But I, I also think it really shows us something real about where we're at in the biblical narrative of sin, what it means to be kind of dead and helpless, right? 
So if you recall, we left off kind of talking about sin and the impact that it has on our souls and our lives, right? We were originally created to be royal representatives of God's glory in his creation, and yet we fell. And in our fall into sin, we're stuck and we're helpless, much like this young woman that I'm talking about tonight. We've been so kind of harmed by the damage of sin that we've actually turned to sin itself to protect us, right? In the same way that she would turn to alcohol to kind of numb her. The human heart can get stuck here, right? We don't know what to do. We're, we're kind of dead and unable to get out of the grips of sin, just like the woman was unable to kind of do something that she needed to do to protect herself that night, right? She needed something outside of herself because she was so unable to save herself, right? The destruction was coming. And so just as the car kind of crumpled around her and protected her when she was functionally dead, right? She couldn't really move. She was passed out. She couldn't do anything. She couldn't protect herself. We, too, are in that place with our sin. We need protection. We are so out of it. We need God to kind of bend around us and protect us in the same way that that car does. We need him to save us, to redeem us from the certain death of our sin. So just a reminder where we're at with this, right? We're talking about the real world. We're talking what being in this world looks like. We're talking about the brokenness that we can experience in, right? And, and we're given uh, all sorts of different ideas about our world, what good is, what evil is, what salvation is, who God is, if you know, God even exists to the people who are um, giving us messages about the world. And so this weekend, we're kind of trying to take a second and say, well, what does the world look like according to God? What is the biblical narrative of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, and we want to see how it kind of fits in and explains the world that we all inhabit. So in this evening, as we kind of pick up with redemption, uh, I want, we want to ask the questions like, how do we go from that place of deadness, right? Dead in our sin, stuck in our sin, uh, just like that woman was stuck, to being able to be reanimated to life, to where we're actually able to enjoy and live in the world that God created us in. So this evening we're going to do that, and um, we're going to talk about kind of God's process of rescuing us, right, from our sin, from our inability to manage our own lives. And to do this, we're going to be looking at these three points. The unity, uh, we're going to look at unity in Christ, death in Christ, and life in Christ. So the first one is kind of uh, what happens in redemption and how that works out and kind of like what are the benefits that we get by being unified to Jesus in his death and being unified to Jesus in his life. So you can kind of think about it that way. So before we do that, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to hop into our first point. Father, we um, thank you that you help us to talk about hard things like our sin, um, and that we can do so um, without shame, uh, because you have saved us, you have named us, you have restored us. And so we, uh, when we talk about these things tonight, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see where we can go when we feel that uh, shame of sin, uh, that you actually do protect us, that you actually save us from that, and you actually restore us to a life where we don't have to be ruled by shame, and that we can actually enjoy your world. And we pray that you're with us as we continue to look at your word. Amen. Uh, so one thing, this is, we're getting to a happier note here. Uh, one thing that I forgot to mention uh, yesterday as I was introducing some of the things that I really like, uh, some things about me, is I'm also a Texas Longhorn fan. Um, and they're about to play in 20 minutes against TCU. 
Some people are, oh, thank you. Yeah, she's giving me a thumbs up. Hook'em horns are there. I see it. Thanks, Maya. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, most of my family attended the University of Texas, and I, I cheered for them uh, for many years and have done so my whole life, and especially their football team. Uh, that's the, the team I most closely follow. Uh, and I'll be honest with you, it's been been a tough couple of years. Uh, really, everything went downhill for us in 2009. What's up, dude? Uh, when the Crimson Tide and their head coach, who, him who shall not be named, uh, he, they came, they played us in the championship game, and we uh, got our quarterback hurt, and ever since then, we've been losing left and right. Uh, and to be even more honest, it's been tough to remain a Texas Longhorn, uh, especially when you see all of your other buddies and their teams winning, and they're all celebrating, right? You kind of want to have that experience. But if I abandoned my team and picked up uh, to follow another team uh, who is more successful, what would that make me? Does anybody know? Bandwagon. Fairweather. That's right, just like this guy. I don't know who he is. The internet does, though. And so for better or worse, right, I've united myself to the Texas Longhorns. When they lose, it feels like I lose. And when they win, oh man, I'm on top of the world. It feels like I win. And if you follow a sports team, right, it feels like that sometimes, right? Um, it feels like when they win, you win. When they lose, you lose. Um, and it's funny because even though none of us do anything to contribute to the win or the loss, uh, we talk about the game, we talk about that team with we language, right? We say, oh, we won by 10 points, that's great. Or, oh man, I can't believe we lost so badly. We are so united to this team that we've uh, like, uh, adopted this we language when we talk about them. We're so connected to what they do, it's as if kind of we did it too. And that's something just true about us, right? We love to connect ourselves and identify ourselves to things. It's a very normal, natural thing about being a human being. However, sometimes sin, right, it comes in and because of its... Uh, work in our lives, we have this high propensity to kind of uh, connect and identify with things, even good things, in ways that ultimately kind of do damage to our souls and our relationships. We talked about that earlier. Uh, and the reason for this is because at the most fundamental level of who we are, right, that part of us that is that creative, royal, uh, independent part on God, right, has been totally corrupted from the outside. So you can almost kind of think of sin like this alien that has come into us, right? And it's corrupted everything about who we are. This is, I think, the most diabolical part of sin, right? Uh, it doesn't create anything new. It just twists all the good stuff that God made. Uh, it takes that creative, royal, independent part of us that was meant to mirror God, and instead it attaches itself to things that will ultimately kind of destroy, degrade, and make us dependent on false saviors. So uh, one of the things that the Bible often talks about is representatives. They talk about like one individual who represented a whole group of people. And it's like all over, it's, it's in almost every chapter of the Bible. But there are two very important representatives that the Bible talks about. And those two people are Adam and Jesus. And earlier today we looked at Adam and I mentioned that how when he fell into sin, that we also fell into sin as well. And that's because God kind of set us up into relationship with him um, as if he was our representative. So that what happened to him also happened to us. 
And we tend to have a really hard time with that because we live in a very individualistic society, but we're actually more intertwined and dependent on one another. And also God can decide these things, right? So that he was our representative. So if you've ever wondered, hey, how come when Adam fell that the rest of us fell too? It's because we were united to him in such an intimate way, connected to him, that as what happened to him also happened to us. Uh, and so an example I think that can help you conceptualize this is I just want you to imagine that you're a bit older, you're at a company, you're working your first job. Um, we'll just say it's Dunder Mifflin Paper Company, right? And because the CEO, he makes bad decisions, the comp that company goes into bankruptcy, right? They declare bankruptcy. Um, and uh, someone, though, comes from the outside, right? We'll say her name's Joe Bennett from Sabre. Uh, she comes in and she buys the company, right? Bringing all of the wealth that she has and kind of restoring that company back into wealth, back into a place of profitability. And that's exactly what our verse is talking about today. Verse 5 says... For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. In this, it's kind of saying that the process of redemption involves leaving our union with sin, our former representative of Adam, right? And the bankruptcy that it led to, and being joined or united to kind of like the CEO of our souls, right? Jesus Christ, yeah. He is the new representative. He is the better representative. He's the one who succeeds where all others have failed. So what does this kind of look like in our lives, right? Becoming detached from sin and being attached to Jesus, right? Detaching from our old union and coming into the new union with Jesus. So in one sense, it's, uh, it, there's nothing, right, that we can do to make that happen. Uh, there's no ABCs to being accepted by God. And that's, that is good news, right? Like Ephesians 2.8 says this, right? It says, for, grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, right? You don't have to do anything to be received by God. It's a gift. But then the question is, like, well, if it's a gift, does that mean we just kind of do nothing? We just wait for God to do stuff in our lives? Uh, and, that, and that's not what we do, right? I don't think Scripture points us in the direction. Instead, it points us to this other process that you can go through. Uh, and it's kind of like what I'll, I'll say. It's like it's a work that we enter into to rest into God's work. And it sounds weird, right? Because it sounds like, are we doing like work to get ourselves saved, to get God's benefit? And it's not. So kind of the idea that I like to think about is like, imagine your grandma wrote you like a happy birthday letter. And in that, she put like a $100 check, right? So you have to do the work to open the envelope, right? so to speak, but really you're not doing anything substantial whatsoever, right? She wrote the note, she put the money in there, she put postage on it and sent it to you. You did nothing, right? But you are just doing the work of saying, hey, I want to be around this letter that my grandma wrote to me, right? I want to receive what she has done for me. Um, and uh, and there, so this is a process that I think we all enter into, and this weekend I think you've been doing it, whether you know it or not. Um, you've kind of been placing yourself in a, in a context where you can experience what I'm going to call the means of grace. And the means of grace is just Christian jargon, right? And it's basically Christian jargon for the things that God promises to work through in each of us. Um, so examples of the means of grace is like his word, right? We are all gathered together this weekend around the word of God. God promises to use his word by his spirit to show us all sorts of things, right? Things that we've been talking about. The goodness of his creation, the devastating reality of sin, 
hope of living um, as restored uh, humans through, through Jesus, and ultimately the vision of that restoring work that will be accomplished at the end of days. Another example of the means of grace uh, that is used uh, most frequently is also kind of talking about just spending time with other believers. Uh, so there's a fancy word that people tend to use for this. It's fellowship, right? Um, I had a friend who used to say, Lamb Jeff, he's like, all right, I'm going to go hang out with a bunch of really Christians. I'm going to go hop aboard the USS Fellowship. It's really bad. It's really bad. But it was so bad that I remembered it, right? So it's a good, it's a good memory thing to kind of be like, hey, what's the mean of, means of grace? Fellowship. Uh, and that's what we've been doing too, right? Like we've been around other believers this whole weekend, uh, whether they're in the bunk next to you snoring, right? You, you're around them. Um, that is what we're doing here. Uh, and I guarantee you that those kind of relationships will develop into friendships, right? If we pour enough time into them. And I, I guarantee you, if you talk to any leader here this weekend and you ask them what's been a significant impact on your life and your Christian walk, they're going to tell you it's been solid Christian friendships, right? That's a main means of grace that God uses in our lives to help us learn more about him and learn what it looks like to follow him. And one of the most important means of grace that scripture speaks of is connection to Christ's body, uh, which is the church, right? And believe it or not, this is probably the most unpopular means of grace today. Uh, again, going back to what I was saying earlier, we're extremely individualistic. We like doing what we want to do when we want to do it. And so actually kind of being connected to a church body, uh, to Christ's body, can be exceptionally rare and difficult to do. However, it is also the prime place where God is at work through these means of grace, showing us what it looks like to live with him. It's the place where we hear his word preached. It's the place where we participate in the Lord's Supper. And it's the place where we also have community with one another or fellowship. Uh, so if you find yourself kind of beginning to dip into Christianity and you're kind of like, I want to learn more about this thing, go to those means of grace, right? Or if you are, are a Christian, you're saying, I really am trying to figure out what does it look like to grow as a Christian, go to those means of grace. Um, so I want to move on to our second point, which is how our union with Christ um, ultimately kind of connects us to Christ's death. Like what kind of benefit do we get out of being united to Christ and his death? Uh, so I'm bringing up another Harry Potter reference. I just can't help myself. Um, so one of my favorite scenes in the Harry Potter movies, uh, and also the book, is the epic battle between Voldemort and Dumbledore at the Ministry of Magic. Uh, it's like the final, finally that like magic battle that you're like, this is what I've been waiting for. Like, we got CGI, let's do some big stuff, guys. And it's, it doesn't disappoint, right? There's an awesome battle and it feels super tense. Uh, and there are all sorts of magical spells uh, being shot around them. Uh, and at any moment, if one of them didn't really have, uh, you know, an awareness around them, they could be toast. Uh, and not only that, but they, these are like the two heavyweights of the wizarding world, right? So in one corner, you have the Dark Lord himself. And then in the other corner, you have the champion of muggles and the defender of Hogwarts, right? You have Dumbledore. And man, they don't disappoint, right? They show up. They give us a show. And at one point, uh, Voldemort kind of disappears. This is in the book in particular. Voldemort disappears and then kind of reappears behind Dumbledore. And we're like, oh, dang. This is bad news, right? And Voldemort shoots the killing curse right at him. And in that moment, as the killing curse, the curse of death is coming right at him, who shows up? His faithful friend, Fox the Phoenix. 
swooping down and swallowing up the death curse and dropping dead. And the passage actually lists it like this. It says that he burst into flame, fell to the floor, small, wrinkled, and flightless. And in a sense, that's exactly what the gospel is. Although, uh, instead of a magical bird taking the curse of death for us, right, we have God himself who kind of steps in to the greatest battle. And he steps in and he takes death's curse for us. Despite our own choices and our failures, get, uh, he gets down deep into the destructiveness of sin and he takes it down, right? We have a greater friend than Fox who comes down and steps in the way. And that's exactly the good news of redemption that we see in this passage today, right? That when we are united to Christ, the grip of sin that was leading to death is ultimately swallowed up, right? In the same way that the phoenix swallowed up the death curse. And Christ says that on our behalf. And we see this in verse 6 and 7 when it says, We know that the old self was crucified with him, that's with Christ, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So there's a lot in there, and I'm going to unpack it, because I think there's three things that if we understand will really help us uh, dig into that more deeply. So the first, when Paul is talking about the old self, he is referring to that self that was united to sin, right? Uh, and now it's important that we often realize that because I think sometimes we take sin and we reduce it to an action, right? We talked about that earlier. But in this kind of context, it's talking about it was an identity, right? It was something that we were so united to that was all over us. And that gets into our second point that I think is helpful for understanding this passage. That this identity of sin is also holistic, right? It, it creeps into every corner of who we are. Uh, my, my way, favorite way of thinking about this is like the Venom character in the Spider-Man universe, right? It's like Venom gets on you and it gets in everything. You cannot get rid of it. It takes over every corner of your life. And third, that the punishment of taking on this identity of sin is death, right? Uh, and we all have to pay that price because all of us have sinned. And it's not just a physical death, right? It's also that spiritual death. It's a breaking of relationship with God. So this old self that the passage talks about is a self um, that was united to sin and that would lead to death. And so Paul is telling us that in our fallenness, we are attached to kind of a, a sinking ship, if you will, or a, a car bound to crash, right? We're, we're going into a death that undoes all goodness. And his death is not just the result, or, or this death is not just the result of sin, but it's ultimately the penalty for it, right? Because again, we're, we're, we're rebels. And so we're stuck, right? We got to this earlier. Like, what do we do? This is so bad. This is the worst news ever. We're lost on our way to death. But the gospel is the good news that there is one who's willing to step in to take the penalty of our sin so that we actually might become free. And God himself steps in and says, I'm going to provide for you. I will die the death that you couldn't survive so that sin won't survive it. I will die the death you couldn't survive so that your sin won't survive it. I'll die the death that you deserve so you can be free from the ever-present destruction of sin. And Jesus says this. Um, he says that he'll do this ultimately so I think we can enjoy the fruit of what we see in verse 7, what it, what it points to, the fruit of being set free from sin. Jesus says, if I die for you, you won't have to pay the punishment. And if I die for you, you won't ever be under the power of sin ever again. 
You'll be free to be exactly who I made you to be. You'll be restored to that royal son, that royal daughter. Um, so I, I think if you asked uh, really, really smart people uh, what the main thing that's shaping your generation, my generation, <clears throat> some might say politics, uh, some might say global warming, some might say technology, and I think to some degree those are very fair statements, right? Uh, but I do think that most of those people would also say that the biggest thing shaping our generation is the idea of identity. And it's kind of been like an underpinning theme of what we've been talking about this weekend, right? Your generation and my generation more than ever has very little consensus about how to answer the question, who am I, right? Uh, in fact, answering this question in this moment of history is almost kind of like walking down the cereal aisle. There are loads of options, right? You can pick anyone off the wall. You can take it with you. If you don't like it, don't worry. You can come back and pick it again. You can come grab a new identity, a new way of answering that question of who I am. And the problem with this, right, this view of identity is that identity is often reduced to trivial things like what you wear, who you hang out with, or what you listen to, what you spend your time and your money on. Like, they're all kind of surface-level things. And the gospel comes in and it says, hey, there's actually several really godly ways that you can navigate all sorts of these kind of surface-level identity markers, but you actually need something to really ground your identity that's going to help you navigate all that. The gospel comes in and says that all of these identity markers that you're looking to are only surface deep, and you, they can't really deal with your heart's core need. They offer you a sense of control and a level of novelty, right, and a level of maybe connectedness to other people who like that thing too, but they won't really care for your heart issues. So as you seek to understand who you are and to answer those kind of big questions, right, because we all have to answer that question, I want to suggest that you start right here. Start with this, that you are one whom the, the Father swallowed up death for, that you are his beloved, and that he deeply delights in you and he loves you. If we start there, if that can sink in, and it's hard to let that sink in, if we let that sink in, it'll actually help us to navigate all those kind of surface level identity markers in a much easier way, right? Once we're reconciled to God, once we have that new sense of identity, it'll help us to kind of engage with those things because they'll have less power over us, right? They won't make it feel like we have to do certain things that will have a lot of shame if we can't kind of prove our new identity, right? Um, you are actually dead to that power of those surface level identity markers because Christ has swallowed up th their power, right? And he is saying, I'm the one who actually gets to define you. So you're free to kind of navigate these things and I'm gonna help you do that with biblical wisdom. That's what he says to us. However, we also need to know more than just what death in Christ looks like, right? We know uh, what he has done through his death. Uh, we know that what we aren't anymore because of what he died um, or when he died for us. But we also need to know more about what we gain through our union with Christ in his life, right? Not just the perfect life he lived, but also in his resurrection life. Um, and so that leads us to our main point, uh, our third point, life in Christ. Uh, so I have to make a confession. I, I'm, I'm notoriously a party pooper when it comes uh, to musicals. Uh, I really like watching movies. I know, it's a problem. Uh, we've, I've had many discussions. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang is a big one, you know. 
it's tough out there. Uh, but I love movies, but I just, I just can't get into musicals. Uh, all my friends give me grief over it, but I do have one. I have one that I love dearly. I've seen it. I've seen it in plays. I've seen it in movies, uh, and that's Les Miserables. And one of the scenes that always moved me really deeply is a scene where the main character, Valjean, uh, and, and he's, he's recently been released from prison, and he's staying uh, with this bishop that he just met. He's staying at his house overnight. And during the night, Valjean is wrestling with this new status of a freed man. Uh, he's been freed, um, but life for him is really tough, right? Because everyone knows he's a convict. They don't really let him pass through the streets easily. They don't want to give him jobs. They don't want to let him, like, buy a room. He doesn't even have any money to buy a room with if he wanted to. And so Valjean, kind of knowing this, he comes in the night uh, to the conclusion that in order to live, he's going to have to steal again, even though stealing is the thing that actually got him into prison in the first place. Um, and so he actually ends up taking gold and silver that's in the bishop's house, and he's sneaking out, and the bishop, like, you know, hears him and goes to find out what's going on, and he just cold clocks the bishop, knocks him out, right? And so then, like, later in the morning, uh, Valjean's kind of outside of the village, and he runs into some soldiers. And they grab him, and they know, like, hey, these are things from the bishop's house. So they take him back to the bishop, and they're like, hey, we caught this guy. We know he stole this stuff from you. Um, and what do you want us to do to him, right? The bishop has like every right to be able to say, throw that sucker back in prison, you know, actually make him work to give me more gold and silver, right? He's totally in my, de my debt. Um, but then the bishop sings, because again, this is a musical, he sings these, long, these lines uh, to Valjean in front of the soldiers. I'm not gonna sing it, don't worry. Um, but my friend, you left so early. Surely something slipped your mind. You forgot I gave these to you also. Would you leave the best behind? And then he's talking about the best are like these huge uh, silver and gold candlesticks. And he goes on to say, or sing, but remember this, my brother. See in this some high plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man. By the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood, God has raised you out of darkness. I have saved your soul for God. So in the same way that Fox the Phoenix died, we also know that the Phoenix kind of raises from the ashes, right? There's that part of it. There's this new life. And that's exactly kind of what the bishop is demonstrating to Valjean in his song, that when Jesus dies for us, he not only forgives us and takes the cost of our sins away, but he gives us the best of life, right? Riches that are a lot better than a ginormous silver candlestick. And this is what Paul is getting at in verse 8. He says this, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And one of uh, the things that people often get wrong about Christianity is that Christianity is not just the belief that Jesus died for your sins. That is absolutely a part of it. But it's also about believing that he rescued us into life with him, right? You can kind of think, think about like he saved me from something and he also saved me into something, right? He saved us into life with him. It's about uh, believing that in the core of who we are, right? That our lives and our hearts were so vulnerable due to sin that we don't just need forgiveness. We actually need salvation from ourselves, right? From the propensity to trust in our own selves about how we should live our lives. And Paul goes on to say in verse 9 and 10, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. 
For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So here, Paul is talking about something huge that's underneath, I think, the surface of this text, like kind of almost like a supporting structural beam would be in a house. And that thing that Paul is talking about is what, I I kind of already said it, but union with Christ, right? It's it's a big, another theological term. I'm dropping a lot of those tonight, so get ready. Uh, And if this term is unfamiliar with you, I want you to hear this clearly. Like, union with Christ is at the core of the gospel. It's the way that we explain it. It's the idea that salvation is dependent on Jesus uniting himself to us so that as Christ experienced the death of sin, so that we too also experience the death of sin in our own lives. And we can actually say with him that death and sin no longer have dominion and rule over me. Right? We can say that. And further than this, union with Christ also means, right? this is coming back to that life piece, that just as Christ's life with God is secure, so is ours, right? In the same way that there is not a possibility of Jesus falling out of God's good graces, that's true for you and for I. It's so secure. We no longer have to fear sin's ability to separate from God, right? Because Jesus has ushered us back into the presence of God, and he's restored us as sons and daughters of the high king. There's nothing that can be done to separate us from him. And Paul concludes this kind of uh, presentation of Christ's work on our behalf and our union with him in verse 11 when he says this. So you also, you and me and everyone in this room who is a believer, we must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's true for you and I if we're in Christ. So as we're kind of uh, over halfway through this weekend, I want to kind of challenge you with this. What would it look like in your life if you really believed that you were united to Christ? That your sins, your failures, and your unbelief aren't actually what define you. And even more than that, that even your best things aren't what define you, right? You don't have to keep it up. There's something that actually defines you that's greater than that. Your identity uh, isn't based on your ability to prove yourself athletically, academically, financially, physically, or socially. That your identity is simply this, one who is known and loved by God. That's core. That's rock solid. One for whom the joy that was set before him, he endured the shame of the cross so that he might restore you and I to the intended intended identity that he gave us, a son and daughter of the king. So imagine with me this uh, weekend as you return home. What if your identity was so solidly secure that you never had to fight for it again, right? And that your life's work, no matter, was now something totally different, right? You're not fighting for your value, your security, right, your meaning, but your life work is something new. It's to learn, right, how God's calling on you um, in this new identity is supposed to shape how you approach your gifts, your relationships, and all the opportunities that you have, right? That's a big thing, too, right? It takes a lot of wisdom to figure that out. Uh, Surely it it would require a lot of growth on our parts. I know that I have a lot of areas, too, where I have to kind of figure out, hey, how is God calling me to live into one of these areas? But I think it would be kind of like a sweet growth and a sweet learning process, too, because we're doing it without risk, right? The risk of falling is taken away, and so we actually get to say, hey, I'm going to try and learn, and sometimes I'm going to fall flat on my face, and have to get up and learn again. And Jesus' delight in you doesn't change over that. 
That is really, really good news. And that process that I'm talking about of kind of being able to see how union with Christ comes into all of our lives is another big theological word, but I think you can handle it. You're doing a great job. This is sanctification, right? And, and a simple definition for sanctification is this. The process of living out in greater measure that which is declared over us in Christ. So as that Christ has said, hey, I have died the sin to death, or died, died, my words don't work, it's too late in the weekend. Uh, I have died for your sins, you are free from that, right? And that spreads out into more and more corners of our lives where we say, I don't really want to give myself to this anymore. I'm somebody different now, right? I belong to Jesus. And in that too is us seeing how the, the impact of how he's saying, and also now you're, you are righteous in me, right? God sees you the same way that he would look on me. That is also creeping further and further into our lives. That gives us security with him. And again, each of us would have to figure out, hey, how is this going to play out in my life, right? It takes a lot of wisdom, a lot of humility. But I want to say, like, the good news is we have the means of grace, right? What I was talking about earlier. We have God's word. We have his spirit working through it. We have the church. We have prayer. We have fellowship. That is something that is coming. But all of who we are is ultimately secure because of his work, and that is ultimately the good news. Uh, so there's this, I want to end this with a, I also really like Winston Churchill, and so I'm going to end it with a Winston Churchill quote. Uh, so in 1942, after the British had finally defeated the Germans in Egypt, uh, Winston Churchill was invited to this big party, and everyone's losing their minds. They're like, this is the best news ever, this is so great. And he was like a little bit more sober about it, right? Because he's saying, this is really good news. I'm not saying we shouldn't celebrate. Let's celebrate this. But also, we need to see this in context, right? And he said this. He said, gentlemen, this is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end. But it is perhaps the end of the beginning, right? So what he's saying in that, again, Churchill likes to say things like this that are a little confusing, uh, but also like really uh, poignant. And so what he's saying is this. That the working out of the victory that we just experienced was the end of the beginning of our victory march, right? The end of the beginning of our victory march. That we are moving in victory towards something that will happen. In fact, it's almost kind of like the hardest part's over. And we're moving and trying to see how that victory shines forth before us. There's still much to fight for in our lives and much to enjoy. So likewise, I want to... Uh, invite you to consider your life in Christ as the beginning of your victory march. From the day that you are redeemed by Christ, you are beginning a journey of seeing all of your life come under the reality of this victory in your life. And his victory will go until the end. I'm going to pray, and the musicians are going to come on up. Father, thank you for your victory. For your victory on our behalf, for our union with you, for redeeming us. Uh, from sin and restoring us, Lord, um, to the fullness of what it means to be your image bearers. All of us really don't know all the ways that that's supposed to look in our lives, but you give grace, uh, you give wisdom, you give us your spirit. And so I pray, Father, that you would help us as your church uh, to know what it looks like to follow you uh, by being humble, by saying we need your help to teach us, by looking to your word and not returning to sin and presuming that we know more than we actually do. And Lord, I pray that you would help each of us to know what it means for you to say over us that you love us and that we belong to you. And I pray that you'd be with us this evening, that you'd help us have a lot of fun during the lip sync battle, karaoke, and the bonfire. In Jesus' name, amen.